Amen. Well, now, you know you haven't understood the Bible properly. When you read an account of people who went the wrong way, who, who turned away from God, who thought the wrong thing, who, who did the wrong thing, and you look at them and think how silly they were, how stupid to do that, how bad to think like that. I could never be like them. You see, sometimes we see the mistakes of others and think ourselves immune. Uh, I don't know about you, but I found that all the easier when the mistake they make is a familiar one. The title for this sermon is Don't Rely on Religion. It certainly gets us to the heart of the Israelites' mistake, but my problem is that I've heard that before. Lots of times. I've said it before a few times. If we're Christians here today, then surely we know that uh, we're not to trust in ourselves, uh, in what we do, in religion our relationship with God. No, we're to trust in Jesus, rely on him, on what God has done for us. Now, sorry, perhaps that's uh, not what you're thinking this morning. Uh, perhaps you would say, oh, I don't know how to have a relationship with God. I don't even really know what that means. Perhaps you're even thinking, oh, what's wrong with relying on yourself? I've had to for everything else. I've led a good life. That should be fine. If either of those better describes you, then rest assured this chapter and the chapters that follow that we'll look at in the the coming weeks will speak directly to you. I pray that God uses them to speak to you. So forgive me if if I direct my opening, not so much to you, but rather to people like me, who will look at this chapter complacently. Because we think we know what it's going to say and think we don't need to hear it. See, if that's you... If you're a bit more like me, then can I encourage you to look again at these verses and think more about this issue? You see, it's true that in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see people make an obvious mistake, a stupid mistake, a dreadful mistake. But the more I've thought about it over this past week or two, the more I've seen how pervasive these mistakes are in my own life and how deep-rooted that where I should have trust and faith in God... I instead try to control him for my own ends. See, us controlling God, or or trying to, that I think lies at the heart of the Israelites' sin here. So let's have a look together at what they did and then think about how it applies to us. See, the first way they try to control God is this. They take no notice of him. Look at verse 1 with me. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. See, the chapter starts with a problem, doesn't it? A defeat at the hands of an enemy nation. 4,000 dead, an army defeated, people confused and dejected. And so the elders ask, why did the Lord bring this defeat? But they don't wait for an answer, do they? They don't even really want an answer, do they? It's not quite clear who they're asking here in verse 3, but it seems to be just a question that's lobbed into conversation among the elders themselves. They certainly don't call for Samuel, 
do they? Samuel, who we know just a few verses earlier, 3 verse 20, is recognised throughout the land as being the prophet of the Lord. Uh, If you had questions, it was Samuel who could give you answers. In fact, he'd already given them the answer. God had already spoken through Samuel, telling them what he was about to do and why. We'll look at that in a moment. But the point here is that they don't look. They don't ask Samuel. He doesn't even feature until chapter 7. It's massive presumption that we see on their part. They don't ask because they already think they know what they need to do. They take no notice of God because they want to set the agenda. They want to do what seems right to them. They don't want to have to face any difficult questions about themselves. You see how it links with control? If we silence God, then we're free to do what we like. If we remove him from the big decisions in our lives, or at least allow him limited access, well then, those decisions are ours, not his. And God will just have to tag along. Now, of course, we can't silence God, can we? But we can shut our ears. We can't deny the power of his word, but we can close the book and not look at it. And do you see here that we can be doing that? We can be ignoring God whilst at the same time paying lip service to him. That's what they're doing here. The elders say, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today? See, they admit that God is in control. Surely the Philistines have their iron chariots and their modern weapons. But they say it's the Lord who caused the defeat. (laughs) They know he's in control, but they won't ask him what he's doing. They know that there's a why. That everything God does has a reason. But they won't ask him what that reason is. And so too for us, I fear. Never mind what we can say about God's power and God's purpose. Do we align ourselves with him? Or do we take no notice and allow the everyday decisions of our daily lives to be made by us and not shaped by him? Because we don't ask. Or if we ask, we don't listen. Controlling God by taking no notice, the next thing they do is is to trust techniques rather than God. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, they say, that it may go with us and save us. Now let's not forget that the ark had been used in the past to great and powerful effect. Uh, This is the ark that went first into the River Jordan when the Israelites crossed into the Promised Land. And the priests who were carrying it, as their feet first touched the water, God stopped the river, the waters piling up in the distance, so that the whole nation could pass through on dry ground. Uh, Looking up at this ark, still in the, the middle of the river, holding the waters back to save them. This is the ark that, when they defeated Jericho, was at the centre of the army as they marched round and round again and again until suddenly the walls fell down miraculously and the city was defeated. No wonder they wanted it with them. No wonder that after defeat in one battle, they want to get their secret weapon to be there with them. But of course it wasn't. A secret weapon at all, was it? It wasn't the ark. It wasn't the ark that was special. It's the Lord that, who is special. It wasn't the ark that did those things. It was the Lord. It wasn't the ark that they needed. It was the Lord. But they went for the thing that looked good. 
They went for the thing that they could do. They went for the thing that they thought would work. They didn't seek the Lord. They just wanted his ark. They were pretending that God is like a puppet and that they controlled the strings. But they were wrong. And so all they end up doing is taking a box into battle to pretend that a box is a weapon. In fact, maybe they did something even worse than that. Maybe they they were thinking more like this. These Philistines are too strong for us. They've just defeated us. But if we bring the Lord's Ark into battle, he will have to fight to protect us because otherwise he will be defeated. He will be dishonoured. He will be captured. And he won't let that happen, will he? See, it's religion that thinks that I can persuade God by my technique. It's manipulation that thinks that I can force him into doing my will. That's what's going on here. And we can be just like them. I am just like them. And maybe that you're sitting here today and you depend upon religion, upon technique, for your very relationship with God. Yes, I'm a Christian, you say, because, well, because I always come to church, or because I say my prayers, because I get involved, because I, whatever it is, can I say to you that if that is your reason, then you are not yet a Christian. And you are heading for disaster as surely as was this army on that day. Now it is only through trusting God, trusting Jesus and his death that we can be one of his people. And yet even if we get that right, we can still fall into this trap of trying to control him. I've been challenged this week thinking about my attitude to prayer. You see, I believe that prayer is important. I believe that God listens to and answers prayers. I believe that prayer is a great privilege. And yet how easy I find it in my thinking to turn it into a a weapon that I control. As though God will have to act according to my agenda. That he will do my will and not the other way around. How tempting I find it to think that big prayer meetings or long prayer meetings will sway God more in my favour. How easy to think that if I tell lots of people what I have prayed then God will be almost forced to answer it, lest they think that he couldn't. And prayer is just one way that we can try to control God. We do the same when we trust our Bible reading technique to sort out our godliness. Or when we trust our evangelistic technique to work miracles in our friends and family. Or our giving technique to sort out our attitude to money, whatever it is. But if we trust technique... And we are trusting a puppet God, a God who dances to my tune, but who cannot save me, cannot change me. And if you are trusting techniques with the real God, well then you face disaster. Taking no notice of God, trusting techniques, the next thing they do is to tolerate sin. Look at verse 4. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. It's one thing to bring the Ark. 
to, to think that that's going to help. But to let Hophni and Phinehas bring it? The priests who back in 2 verse 12 were told were wicked men who had no regard for the Lord. These priests who bullied God's people, stealing their sacrifices, whose sin in 2.17 was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. These men who slept with the, the temple prostitutes, who wouldn't listen to the rebuke of their father. How can you expect the Lord's blessing when you bring them to battle? And especially when God has twice specifically prophesied judgment against the house of Eli. These are the two men that you shouldn't have wanted to be anywhere near in those days because you knew that the Lord's judgment was going to fall. Let alone have them carry the ark, uh, the thing in which all your superstitious trust has been placed. You see, Israel didn't mind. They tolerated sin in their midst, indeed at their heart. And they hoped that God would not notice Do you? Do you expect to see great things from God while at the same time turning a blind eye to things in your own life? What does that say about what we think of him? That's not to say that we have to be without sin to see God work. That would be going back to technique again, wouldn't it? No, the Bible is clear, isn't it? That if we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves. Of course we sin, of course we are weak. And God is still gracious, so that we can still see him work in and through us. But we must not tolerate sin. We must not ignore it. We must not indulge it. We must not leave sin unaddressed in our lives. Because to have that sort of complacency is to invite this sort of warning and judgment from God. Ironically, I think we can be complacent about sin even when we have a clear understanding of Jesus and the cross. Because I know how quickly I can fall into thinking that my sin is easy to forgive. Freely available. It is easy for me as I come to God in repentance and receive pardon and restoration. It's wonderful, it's free. But it is at such cost to God, isn't it? That's what I must remember. His own son hanging by the nails, becoming a curse for us. Tolerating sin, trusting technique, taking no notice of the God who they wanted to help them. And then the last thing they do is that they take it easy. Have a look from verse 5 there. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. See, the ark arrives, and initially it gives the morale boost that they've been looking for. The shout of triumph echoes across the valley. 
But then that's it. They just shout. There's no organising of the army. There's no spurring each other on. There's no encouragement. That all happens in the Philistine camp. See, they're the ones here who, who fear God. Now, they don't submit to him. They're not a positive example for us here. Next week we'll see their idolatry and how God crushes them. But here, at least they take him seriously. They don't think he's a puppet. And so they shout to each other, be strong, be men and fight. And so they fought and the Israelites fled. They just flee. They expected God to come and do it all for them. In fact, they expected him to come and do it without them. And do we want the same? Do we want to be able to take it easy? Make God do it all? For instance, perhaps we want to know God better. But we'd much rather he zapped our brains and our hearts than that he reveal himself to us one small group meeting at a time or one quiet time at a time. Or we want to see God change our culture. But we don't want to be part of the process. We want to see God reaching out and saving people from the, the homeless community or the gay community. And if he can let us know when he's done it, that would be great. Or we want to see God overrule so that at work we don't face the same ethical struggles, the same difficulties in living as a Christian, in honouring Christ. But until he has done that change, well, we'd rather blend into the background. See how easy it is to take it easy? Of course, it's not that God needs us. He's powerful to do all of those things and more. But we should rejoice that he chooses to involve his people in his work. That he advances his kingdom through the people in his kingdom. That he wants us involved. And so we should say to ourselves and each other, the Lord is with us, so be strong and fight. Do you try to control God? They did. They did it by taking no notice of him. They did it by trusting their own techniques. They did it by tolerating sin. They did it by taking it easy. But it didn't work. Of course it didn't work. Because God is in control. We don't control God. He controls us. It's the other key thing in this chapter, isn't it? God is in control. Just have a look back at verse 1 there. At the top, Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now, it's true we saw last week that this, in one sense, finishes off chapter 3, where at the start of the chapter that the Lord's word was rare, but by the end he's raised up Samuel and is now speaking to his people through his prophets. But here, when it says that Samuel's word came to all Israel, it doesn't just mean that they heard it. It means that it happened to them. It means that it came to pass. And so when we're told this in verse 1, it's looking forward to the whole rest of the chapter and what follows. Because what is Samuel's word? Well, there's only one that's been expanded for us in chapters 2 and 3, and it is the word that the Lord is going to judge the house of Eli and kill Hophni and Phinehas for their sin, ridding Israel of their sinful priests so that the Lord could raise up a new and faithful man. 
That's God's promise. That's his purpose. And now it happens. And because of their complacency, it happens to all Israel. So that not two, but 34,000 men were struck down. God is in control. His word comes to pass. We see it later that day too. As uh, Eli, the old man, sits by the roadside, uh, nearly blind, filled with fear for the ark that has been taken by his sons, uh, unable to see the messenger uh, running in to see that he's wearing the, the signs of mourning, unable to decipher the shout and cry that comes from the city. And so when the messenger runs to him, he says in verse 16, well, well, it says here, what happened, my son? But literally, it's what is the word, my son? It is exactly the same phrase that he asked of Samuel in 318, 3.17. Sorry. When Samuel has been told by the Lord this, this dreadful prophecy about Eli's sons, and Eli says to him, what is the word? Don't hold it back, or Samuel tells him, your sons will die. He knows what's going to happen. So when this Benjamite runs and he says, what is the word? Well, Eli, you already know. The army is defeated, your sons are dead, and the ark of the Lord has been taken. God is in control. What he says happens. And as news of the ark registers in Eli's brain, it sends his whole body into shock so that he falls and snaps his neck. And then it goes on. His daughter-in-law here, she she goes into premature labour, labour which brings about the birth of a boy, but it's too much for her, and she dies, naming him no glory, Ichabod, for the ark of God has been captured. it's It's a desperate end, isn't it? The Israelites defeated and scattered, their priests killed, their symbol of hope, their symbol of God's presence taken from them. But God is in control. This is all according to his word. And it is for his glory. In fact, it is an amazing truth that God is most in control here when he least seems like it. Because it is in this chapter that he is laying the seeds for the renewal he has promised. It's in this chapter that he deals with the sin of his people. It is in this chapter that he opens the way for that new and faithful man to lead them and reveal God's will to them. But he does it at the price of his own honour. See, the Israelites may have thought that they could, they could force him into action. But here God shows that he would rather face apparent defeat and shame at the hands of an enemy than to leave the sin of his people unaddressed. It's the sacrifice he makes for their sake. And of course it's the same sacrifice that he makes for our sake. The same sacrifice that we see Jesus make as he brings our ultimate rescue. As on the cross he forfeits his honour, wearing a crown of thorns. As he suffered apparent defeat, as those who were his enemies rained blows on his body and spat in his face. But you see, it's there that we know he dealt with our sin and triumphed over his enemies. And so we look to him. Don't try to control God. We can't. Of course we can't. Yet we still try. 
But no, we need his control. Because we need him to win our victory. He has done it on the cross. And when we trust him and him alone, well then it is a victory we share. Let's pray together.